Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Welcome back everybody. Now before we start, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We have a way for you to support our podcast. Yeah, as you may know, uh, we are pretty much a shoestring operation. We do all of this, you know, off our own book. Uh, So to try and support the next season of the Irish Passport, today we are launching a beautiful, flattering, oh-so-stylish tote bag that you, yes you, can buy on our website. Yes, it is beautiful and it is flattering and I am so (laughs) proud of it if you like what we're doing and you would like to see more of it please log on to www.theirishpassport.com and buy a canvas bag and this will give us the means to make more episodes right so Naomi today we are talking about something that certainly in my experience Ireland has become kind of notorious for it's abortion laws yes abortion is of course almost totally banned in Ireland and it carries actually up to a 14 year prison sentence so that's Mm. one of the strictest laws in Europe yes and the backstory is really weird guys Uh, as we'll hear in a minute it involves an order of and a eugenicist conspiracy. I have no idea about any of this, so I can't wait to, wait to hear it as well. But we'll also hear from the Irish Health Minister, Simon Harris, who I asked directly. If I were to need an abortion urgently in Ireland in 2019, do you think I'll be able to get one? I can't wait to hear his response to that one. Yes, but before we get to it, let's just lay out why we're talking about this. So the Irish government has promised a referendum in May or June 2018 on whether to keep the bit of the constitution that almost completely bans abortion. Right, and that bit of the constitution is the infamous Eighth Amendment, which some of you might have heard of. It's worth noting, of course, that Ireland has referendums quite frequently, really, in relative terms. Um, This is actually just one of seven referendums that have just been announced. Yeah, it's because it's the only way that we can change our constitution. But the only referendum that people are talking about among those seven is this abortion one, because historically it's been such a contentious political issue in Ireland. And at the same time, the beginnings of campaign are are already underway. Uh, So I went to get a flavour of it a few weeks ago in Dublin. Okay, let's take a listen to that. We want these services on the public health system, which means kicking the Catholic Church out of our hospitals. We are not going to take that. It's a damp autumn night in central Dublin, and I've stepped into an event which is held by pro-choice activist group Rosa to get a taste of the campaign that's about to get underway. One of the speakers here is younger than all the others. In fact, she's still in school. I took Megan Brady aside to ask her why she chose to put down her school books and come and take up the campaign to change Ireland's abortion laws. Hi, I'm Megan Brady. I'm 17 years old. I'm a six-year student and I'm one of the founders of School Students for Choice. What school are you in? Um, I can get in a bit of trouble for answering that as my school is quite religious, so I've been told not to say that by some family members. Uh, why was it this issue that you decided was going to be the thing that you were going to spend your time working on? What was it about it? 
Um, well, when I was back in third year, it was when I went to my first pro-choice march. I was with some friends. I didn't really know much about it. But then I just went and I started finding out more. And it was just shocking to me that it's written in the Irish Constitution. There are laws on my body that could kill me. Like, um, there are women who have to travel every day. And I just think it's wrong that we send people away to seek health care. I think it's wrong that Ireland lets women die. How's your sense of how this will go from now? Are you very positive about it or are you kind of, are you bracing for a battle? Um, normally I'm an optimist, but I am going to say I'm bracing for a battle. We're going to have to fight tooth and nail for everything. And then even if we do get a referendum, if we do get repeal, there's going to be legislation brought in on top of that. And then if we beat that legislation, we're going to have an issue where hospitals that are controlled by the Catholic Church barely want to give out contraception. Like they're not going to give us abortion. So then that's a whole other fight. So I'm ready for a long fight. I spotted Ruth Coppinger, who's a TD for Dublin West since 2014 for the left-wing Solidarity People Before Profit Party. She spoke to the crowd about how, in her experience, people initially opposed to legal abortion could be won round through discussion. But she told me the real battle might not be to convince the Irish people, but against the conservative inclinations of those in power. What do you think will be required for the amendment to be repealed? What needs to be done? I think we have to be... uh honest with people about the reality of abortion in Ireland that you know a huge number of women with the same abortion rate as countries that have abortion legal uh, we have a higher abortion rate than Holland which has much more liberal law than any other country in the world you know so we have to have a realistic discussion with people also people are very judgmental about women especially and probably not as understanding about what it takes to bring a child into the world you know and terms of the energy the money you know all of those things they're not trivial things so it will be messy we had a meeting last night that was cancelled because the anti-choicers barraged the venue with complaints so the venue was pulled so you can see the kind of tactics that they'll employ you know i don't go breaking up anti-abortion meetings it's a democracy let them have their meetings yeah so there'll be some nasty tactics there's no doubt but uh I'm not fearful about it. I've, I've been out talking to people since, for five years about this, since the death of Savita. We've been on the streets regularly with stalls. I stood in a by-election. I stood in a general election on a pro-choice platform. And it wasn't a big issue, you know. I think attitudes are, have changed a lot. Do you get the sense that there is a kind of um, an institutional conservatism, I suppose, in the doll and also in officialdom it's so far removed when you go in there from reality um it's it's male pale and stale obviously and it's also wealthier people more middle class we've got isn't it one in three members of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are landlords whereas four percent of the Irish population is so you can see how it doesn't reflect fully in any way society certainly doesn't reflect women young people you know other smaller ethnic groups aren't represented so it's not a representative place either there is a real conservatism and we'll have a battle on our hands well you can hear from 
the sound and the atmosphere there that the activists in favor of more progressive legislation are fired up and they're ready to fight this. Of course, you know, beyond the social concerns, this issue is tied up with a whole horrible tangled web of political power play in Ireland. And unfortunately, women's health has become a bit of a bargaining chip at times and all of that. Okay, so Tim, I know you've been digging into this. What's the story? Mm. Why was the Eighth Amendment brought in in the first place? Well, until recently enough, Irish abortion law was based on the same old Victorian legislation uh, that was used in England. It had been there since before independence, of course, and that is the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861. Okay, so remind us what that is again. Yeah, it legislates against, I quote, every woman being with child with intent to procure her own miscarriage. Uh, So it doesn't even uh, use the word abortion. And the punishment uh, for that was originally life imprisonment. Okay, so this old British law in in, in most of the UK was amended in the 1960s, right? Right, exactly. So, like, in the 1960s, we see the arrival of the contraceptive pill, uh, which has this domino effect, really, in the Western world, and it's set a whole series of sexual health reforms into into motion. Uh, You know, this is an extraordinary and pretty polarizing moment in the history of sexuality, really. Uh, But in short, uh, at this time, bodily autonomy and reproductive control was very much seen as a kind of modern response to a massive health crisis. How so? Because hundreds of women were were dying every year, you know, from from botched and illegal abortion. Mm. Uh, Reform was also fundamental to women's rights in ways that we might forget today, because Mm -hmm. back then, you know, uh, having a baby out of wedlock or having a baby at all uh, could easily force women out of the workforce or cut off their income or, you know, get them thrown out of home. Okay. So the UK passed the Abortion Act in 1967, uh, which not only gave women access to safe and legal abortion, but it funded it via the NHS. And at the time, it was one of the most liberal abortion laws in Europe. And of course, this change never quite reached Northern Ireland, though. Even though it was part of the UK, at the time it had uh, its own parliament enacting laws. And let's think about that year in 1967. What was going on in Northern Ireland then? The civil rights movement was just getting going. That was going to end up in violence against the demonstrators and ultimately bubble over into open conflict. So there was just lots of other stuff going on, lots of other priorities. And the parliament that was in place in Northern Ireland just didn't enact the law uh, for, for there. And not long after, this stormant collapsed and the troubles were in full swing and events just moved on. Right. And we mustn't forget, of course, that back then the main political parties in Northern Ireland were, of course, very anti-abortion anyway. Yeah. And even today, the Democratic Unionist Party, so Northern Ireland's biggest pro-British party, is uh, staunchly adamant about maintaining the laws as they are. And it's a blocked attempts to bring in more progressive laws. But the story was a bit different in the Republic of Ireland, wasn't it? Right. So, of course, the Republic would have been watching these developments uh, back in the 60s quite closely. But, I mean, at that stage in 1967, contraception still wasn't even legal to sell in the Republic. So it didn't look like abortion was going to come in anytime soon. Okay, and it's important to say that Ireland wasn't unique in that respect. So lots of other countries would have been in similar position at the time. And abortion wasn't liberalised, for example, in Italy until 1978 or in Spain until 85 and in Portugal until 2007. Yeah, right. And Ireland had uh, as well this rather handy way of avoiding dealing with the issue at all uh, because, of course, it was right next to this country with Europe's most liberal uh, legislation on abortion. Uh, So even before the 1967 law, Irish women had already been regularly travelling to England to get abortions when they could. Um, because it was slightly easier there. So that just continued after the 1967 Act. And of course, it continues up to today. And we'll discuss that in a minute. But first, Tim, the big difference between Ireland and other countries is the Eighth Amendment. It's in the Constitution and it was brought in by referendum in 1983. So Parliament can't do anything. There's a constitutional ban that can't be 
overturned aside from through a popular vote. So how did we actually get into this situation? Okay, right. Well, get ready for this because this is mental. Okay, I can't wait to hear it. Go for it. Okay, so all these European countries were adopting abortion legislation one by one then Mm -hmm. from the 1960s onwards, right? Okay. So it was soon clear that this was going to be like the new normal. And of course, the same time you got contraception becoming more available. Like, um, I think condoms became legal to sell in like 1980, right? Right, yeah, it was pretty late. Um, But what happened really then was that these developments such as uh, legalization of certain contraceptions, these kind of triggered opposition from ultra-conservative Catholic organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, And they were pretty angry already about contraception being legalized. Uh, Back at this point as well, 1979, 1980, remember that we had just had that huge visit from the Pope, which is really kind of like spurred up um, Catholic sentiment again. And it's kind of like Vatican II and all these young people getting involved and stuff. So it's like this positive happy Catholicism running Right, yeah. yeah. Well, certainly, yeah, in, in certain sectors, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of these people thought of these recent developments uh, in sexual health to be, like, damaging to what they understood as traditional family structures. Mm-hmm. So they had some, like, really wide-ranging motivations. Uh, there were some groups, you know, who were opposed to nudity on television, like, and uh, gotta some hate other that. ones. Oh, my God, why yeah, would they think of Game that. of Thrones? <laughs> they would not like Game of Thrones. Uh, we, we mentioned Game of Thrones a lot on this podcast, Naomi. <laughs> Can you blame <laughs> us? I, I love it. I haven't even seen it, it, really. You're an abnormal example, Tim. I am, it's true. So there were were some others who were really against illegitimacy, which was, of course, you know, super taboo at the time. Um, And so this was a major battlefront for them. Uh, And in the early 1980s, a lot of them came together to make sure that abortion legislation could never even potentially be adopted in the Irish Republic. Now, I mean, there hadn't even been any real mention of liberalizing abortion in the government at this point. So this was, you know, a preemption. Okay, okay, so you got all of these um, Catholic lobby groups all coming together and those who would want more abortion access like abortion was already illegal um, they they haven't even begun to get their boots on really have they? Well yeah exactly uh, so this coalition was known as the Pro-Life Amendment Campaign or mm-hmm. PLAC for short. So was their aim from the very beginning to, to get an abortion ban into the constitution? Well, yeah, it's there in their name, right? The Pro-Life Amendment campaign. Right, of course. And they focused their efforts, uh, you know, all together and they began campaigning for this some kind of amendment before the general election that was going to take place in 1982. Okay. So... Pretty quickly, the PLAC managed to get the two big parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, to both commit, uh, well, majority Fine Gael, to having a referendum to put an anti-abortion amendment into the constitution. Okay, so before they fought the election, they'd made this commitment. It, God, it just shows how organized they are. Yeah, well, uh, or powerful at least. Uh, like, the details of their campaign, I have to say, are pretty murky now. Like, I've had a very hard time finding reliable information on it on the internet. Mm. And um, a lot of material that you'll find online kind of straight up contradicts other information. So, you know, listeners, okay. like, do let me know if I've got something wrong. And actually would be really interested to hear from anyone who was involved in that campaign uh, in the 1980s, you know, to, to get your own uh, position on it. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. the, the journalist Fintan O'Toole wrote this very high profile and controversial article about the campaign in 2014. Uh, and he described the movement in that article as, I quote, sectarian, paranoid and apocalyptic. <laughs> What does that even mean? <laughs> right, sure. Well, okay. He, he, he's talking, first of all, about the fact that the PLAC was almost exclusively made up of Catholic or Catholic-affiliated groups, mm-hmm. and that in response to this, the majority of Protestant political groups in Ireland started to campaign against the amendment. Oh, God. So straight away, you've got this, like, 
political campaign that split right down sectarian lines. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's no help at all. Um, and we have to remember that this was at the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland, of mm. course. Um, but more than this, you know, this was a pretty random collection of societies. There was um, 13 of them in total. Uh, they range from national parents associations to a guild of Catholic pharmacists to a group of pro-life lawyers mm-hmm. to something called the, the National Association of the Ovulation Method. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a card-carrying member of that, by the way. Um, the the whole thing was, um, it was chaired for the first time in 1981 uh, by the so-called Order of the Knights of St. Columbanus, mm, which, as far as I can see, is some kind of a secretive, ultra-Catholic answer to the Freemasons. It's an all-male fraternal society. Oh, of course, all-male, naturally. Naturally, yeah. Now, I mean, I'm guessing that their knighthood is some kind of cosplay, you know, because I, <laughs> uh, I don't think they have any actual titles, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, well, there are some Catholic aristocrats hanging around, but anyway, mm. who are these people, Tim, that are leading this campaign? Okay, well, let's let's meet a few of them. So, one major figure in the PLAC was John O'Reilly, a former Knight of Columbanus, I believe, and uh, Vice President of the Council for Social Concern. Inoffensive sounding. Very inoffensive sounding. Uh, Fintan O'Toole's article recounts a court case that O'Reilly was involved in, which wasn't that inoffensive. What he had done, allegedly, was that he had got his underage daughters to pose as adults and write to the family planning clinic asking for contraception and then he brought criminal charges against the clinic when they sent some out oh okay so he could say that the the clinic was giving contraceptives to children okay right yeah and O'Toole's article also points out that a lot of O'Reilly's problems seem to have been primarily concerned with illegitimacy it's so like the the children of unwed parents Right, yeah, and I think that's actually a really important point uh, to to take in here. You know, that there was a very different context under which this campaign was being fought, you know, like, this is an issue that, like, it's hard even to imagine could stoke people up into anger today, but that this would have been a a primary issue at the time. Okay, Uh, so it's just like a, a completely different context. Yeah, indeed, right? Um, uh, And the Council of Social Concern also wanted to get rid of contraception again, too. Those dastardly condoms. Those dastardly condoms, yeah. Uh, So we can see that the the groups leading this campaign often had a much wider agenda than just an anti-abortion stance. Mm -hmm. Like, it could be argued, really, that they were using this hot-button issue as a way to, uh, like, more widely consolidate Catholic control over the Constitution and to enshrine Catholic attitudes to sex in national law. So they wanted to like keep Ireland pure. Mm, right. And you can see this, you know, if you look at some of the political parties who, who opposed the law, it included some parties who also opposed uh, abortion, like, you know, Sinn Féin. So like they were opposed to abortion, but they were also opposed to the Eighth Amendment. And that shows you, like at the very least, that people were worried that this was not the best way to avoid abortion from happening. Okay, so it was kind of a proxy or like a tentpole issue for like acting out on wider cultural issues. Kind of a bit like um, like the social issues get used in the United States, actually. Oh, yeah, that's that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, but <laughs> but wait, Naomi, it gets way crazier. Okay, okay go on. All right. So another leading figure in this PLAC was a woman named Valerie Riches. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's English, actually. And she was part of a far right group in England called the Responsible Society. Another inoffensive name. Another inoffensive name. It's still around and it's even more inoffensively titled today. It's called uh, Family and Youth Concern now. Mm. And it still makes appearances every now and again in uh, British politics. Okay. Uh, but in the run-up to this amendment, uh, she, she seems to have brought her fight to Ireland because in 1981, an Irish branch of her responsible society joined the PLAC. Now, stay with me here because this brings in some pretty bizarre motivations, right? Okay, go ahead. Uh, 
Valerie Rich's main campaign seems to have actually been against International Planned Parenthood, right? Okay, so Planned Parenthood is like the organization that will give you advice on contraception and things like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Um, because, wait for it, she believed that Planned Parenthood were at the center of a global eugenicist conspiracy, <laughs> which was a which was aiming to reduce the world's population through government and media control. What? Oh my God. You, do you know what always fascinates me about these media control <laughs> conspiracies is like it relies on uh, like ideas about how journalists work, which just don't make sense. Like, are we all sitting in a conference call, like at the beginning of the day, deciding like the agenda of our articles? And if that was true, do you not think that would be like an awesome scoop for a journalist to reveal? Like, it just <laughs> doesn't make sense. Anyway, oh, yeah. how, how, how do they sit on that one? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't need any of that anyway, Naomi. Your um, your regular like blood drinking meetings in your underground lair are more than uh, sufficient. To- <laughs> cover everything uh no but it's it's not just the media though naomi it's also the gays oh what are they up to this time the gays yeah those dastardly gays well <laughs> uh, according to articles by valerie riches international planned parenthood was pressuring governments to teach sex education to children because they were using this to actively promote homosexuality as a means of population control w- why what what's what's supposedly the ideology behind that oh i mean like it's Well, okay, to find out, let's look at an article that she wrote in 1986. I have it here in front of me. It's called Sex and Social Engineering. Uh, You can find this freely on the internet, listeners, if you want to look it up. Um, And, like, it has the appearance uh, at first glance of a peer-reviewed article, but um, I think it's actually self-published, as far as I can see. Uh, It's, you know, it's got a fair few spelling errors, so I I should hope so. (laughs) But it it looks Uh, like a scientific article, if you were to glance at it. Very much so, yeah. Okay. Uh, So this is from page 11. Uh, She's talking about Nazi extermination projects. Mm -hmm. And she says that after World War II, I quote, the eugenics movement had to go underground and the term birth control, which had strong Nazi connotations, was dropped in favor of family planning. Eugenicists, uh, spelt wrong, by the way, and birth controllers had to find a new justification for their activities. The novel idea that the world was overpopulated gave them this justification. The population control movement was born. Oh my God. So this is proper like tin hat territory. Mm, yeah. So you're saying that one of the leading figures who was associated with the PLAC thought that <laughs> contraception and abortion and, and sex education were part mm. of like a eugenicist conspiracy that had grown out of the Nazis? I mean, like... He, like to say it out loud is 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 something else yeah <laughs> naomi i mean i don't know if she still thinks this but yes in short in 1986 anyway she seems to have believed that there was a crypto nazi population control project being run out of the family planning clinic <laughs> yeah, but oh. seriously like these are the people who had a hand in changing the text of our constitution now by the way according to o'toole's article uh, the irish responsible society also campaigned against funding being granted to the dublin rape crisis center so you know yeah nice bunch Mm. um also just so you know valerie riches became a papal dame not so long ago right it's it's quite interesting that she was like from an english conservative group and got involved like i i suppose ireland is just small enough that like international groups from bigger countries can't have the money and the people to just like overwhelm an issue in ireland if they want to yeah for sure so like of course this this big lobby group had the backing of the catholic church and together they lobbied the government to organize a referendum on this new constitutional amendment 
And I mean, like, priests and bishops were actively promoting this amendment campaign from the altar. And like, if you'll remember from our previous episodes, uh, like, a lot of priests and bishops had a huge coercive influence uh, back then. Like, the vast majority of Irish Catholics in the 1980s would have gone to Mass every week. Uh, Some priests and some bishops could ruin your reputation if you said the wrong thing. Like, in the village or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. And also remember that this was a period of massive emigration, so there was a disproportionate amount of older voters around and very few young ones, you know, the ones who would be of childbearing age in the first place. I guess also, like, the Catholic vote has always been really important historically to the two big traditional parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Like, so it's just, it's quite important to them to keep on side. So there's a bit of an opening if a conservative ultra-Catholic lobby group decides it wants something. Yeah, for sure, right? So the power play comes in immediately. So uh, Fianna Fáil, um, who uh, apparently still uh, uh, support the Eighth Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, uh, embraced the referendum quite happily. Uh, Fine Gael was split on the issue. And uh, other opposition parties didn't really put up much of a fight. Mm. Uh, one of the few figures that was brave enough to speak out loudly against this lobby group was the future president, um, Mary Robinson. And she, you know, speaking of the devil, she had already been denounced from the altar for her support of contraception. Oh, my God. Like, it's amazing to think of, like, the trajectory of Mary Robinson's career. So, like, from being mm. denounced at the altar, like... I think Dermot Ferriter, the historian, writes in uh, in his book Occasions of Sin, a pro-life activist said she had the morals of a tomcat. Um, God. Like, yeah. I- I've heard somewhere else that she was referred to in a newspaper somewhere as contraceptive Mary. Like, this is the woman who was going to become Ireland's first woman president and also, like, a hugely respected figure around the world. Yeah, you know, it was a very different Ireland, I suppose. And, you know, the fact that Mary Robinson became president just a few years later does show you how fast things were changing. Mm. So no wonder that the PLAC were so anxious to prevent any potential changes in the law. I see. Yeah, so in the end, how do you suppose the vote went? Okay, well, I know it was passed, obviously, and because we have the amendment in the Constitution, but what was the breakdown? Well, there were only five constituencies in the entire country where that referendum didn't pass. Oh my God. All of them also were in Dublin. Uh, in, in the whole rest of the country, it passed with generous margins. And like some constituencies had like 83 or 84% in favour. That's am- that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, for a lot of people, this was possibly tied up with anxieties about depopulation. And that's the reason it had such support in rural areas. And it, it was also, to a certain extent, tied up with national pride. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of defiance about it, you know, not following in the footsteps of uh, UK legislation. Right. Uh, to get a feel for how this whole debate was viewed by Irish women at the time, I spoke to author and journalist Mary Kenny, who has written extensively on feminism and women's issues in Ireland. Uh, she has a new book that should be coming out this month, actually. It's called Am I a Feminist, Are You? Oh, it might already actually be out by the time you hear this. Um, back in the 1970s, she was part of a famous feminist protest by the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, where a group of women symbolically brought huge amounts of contraception on the train from Northern Ireland, and then they refused to l- relinquish it to the customs officers in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a protest, of course, against it being uh, contraband at the time. It's kind of famous, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, there's some great clips of it you can see online. Let's hear from her. Certainly, when you mentioned the condom train, some people felt it was a bit outrageous. And my own mother, who certainly did feel that it was distasteful. Because you can imagine in 1970, the, the notion of talking about something as intimate as, as, as personal contraception 
was would have been considered indecorous, not only in Ireland, but in many cultures. So it was a uh, certainly some people disliked that and they were offended by it as well. But um, there were also quite a lot of women, ordinary Catholic mothers, if you like, who did feel that they had an, uh, an important entit- entitlement to contraception for their health. Before you had effective contraception, women's health really was, uh, could be very damaged by too many repeated pregnancies and when we brought the condoms and spermicides and so on through the the, the border uh, I mean the poor border guards were absolutely mortified and didn't know where to look and and, and it was very very I was so sorry for them because they were you know middle-aged men they were fathers of children and they were just very very embarrassed um, by this uh, display if you like of, of the, these uh, if you like wild women coming through. So it, it really was a, a, a stunt which went down, uh, which gained a lot of publicity and, of course, a lot of focus. Uh, Mary Kenny herself describes herself as pro-life. Uh, she didn't want to comment on the current political situation. Uh, she's not living in the country right now. But she told me what it was like to be a journalist in 1983 when the Eighth Amendment was being passed. I would say I'm pro-life, but I do see the many complications and nuances and especially the historical context. In 1983, I was more or less reporting on the referendum. And uh, so I was there as a journalist rather than as a, as a participant. And I saw it very much linked with a complex network of questions in Irish history and demographics. Depopulation has always been a great anxiety in Irish history, uh, certainly since the famine. And you, where you had the counties which suffered the most depopulation, where the where there were the schools were closing, they couldn't uh, form a, a junior football team. These kind of anxieties about the flight from the land. There you had the strongest pro-natal tendency, where people were opposed to if you like, uh, birth control attitudes. Counties like Leitrim, Mayo, Donegal, very, very strong pro-life votes there. The same thing happened in France after the First World War. France lost so many men, and uh, so France brought in um, a Suppression de Contraception Act in 1920, which stayed on the statute books in France until 1967. Well, I, I, I saw that there was a, a split between rural Ireland and uh, metropolitan Ireland. Also, there was quite a strong feeling of nationalism at the time. The troubles in Northern Ireland were very, very much, uh, very active. Bobby Sands, the hunger striker, was very high profile at the time. And I think there was also a little bit of a feeling, we will defend our own values. These are our values, so let us defend our values. So, and I don't think it was particularly gender-based. I think it was that was it was more a difference between rural people and metropolitan people. One of our late, very fine politicians, Garrett Fitzgerald, once said, "You know, the definition of a successful revolution is pushing a door open which is already ajar." And so, once when people are ready for change, they will accept big radical change. It's such an Irish story, isn't it? Like, it's definitely got that Irish idea about 
big happy families and like it doesn't matter if you're poor you can put another potato in the pot like and that's that's the idea that was behind this and that's how the eighth amendment got in the constitution right yeah i suppose in many ways it's something from another time um but of course there is in particular this vague and problematic wording in the amendment that would create uh, uncertainty in even the most extreme cases to come let's uh, read out what it actually says so quote it says the state acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. Okay, so if you think about that wording, right, you can see how it's immediately going to cause a legal trap for times when the, mm. the mother's rights are in conflict with the rights that it grants to the fetus. Sure, right. And this was flagged from the very start by lawyers at the time. And uh, problems arose in clinical situations pretty quickly, right? Yeah, of, co- of course, the case that's notorious in Ireland is known as the X case. Uh, yeah, so this is like the litmus test for if the Eighth Amendment works. Right. So this is what happened. So there was a 14-year-old girl and she became pregnant as a result of statutory rape and she became suicidal over this. Now her family were planning to bring her to Britain to have an abortion but before they did that they asked Gardi or the police whether the fetus's DNA could be used as evidence in court because um, the neighbour who was responsible was denying everything. Right so a pretty bad situation. Yeah it's a horrible situation but essentially here's what happened. The wording of that amendment creates a right for the unborn and says that it has to be defended and the question is Divided by who? So who who advocates for the fetus? It wasn't clear and this hadn't been tested out. Of course, right. Okay, so the Attorney General, whose name was Harry Whelan, he decided he was going to be the one to defend that right. So he took this on and he brought an injunction to stop the girl from travelling to Britain for an abortion. Right, so she was essentially being sequestered in the country. Listeners were a bit too young to remember all this, but everyone still knows about this case. Uh, you know, it caused an, a national uproar. Yeah, like I, I only remember the aftermath of it, but it everybody knows about it. It's so notorious. So it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court found that in cases like suicide risk, if there was a real and substantial risk to the life of the woman, then she could have an abortion. Right. Yeah, because I mean, in crude terms, if she commit suicide then you lose both right Mm -hmm. so anyway the girl in the x case had a miscarriage um shortly after the judgment so it was never actually followed through but this ruling didn't actually fix the flaws of the amendment because it still means there's this murky debatable situation what's a real and substantial risk who decides so this is murky it's it's murky in the doctor's surgery and it's murky at a time when decisions really need to be quick like it's there's a really pressing time limit and it means the outcome can be different depending on like the vagaries of the circumstances and the people involved so after the x case then terrible cases just don't stop happening yeah exactly they don't stop happening so we had savita halep of in 2012 who was the dentist and she died after she miscarried her baby so her family say that she asked for a termination as soon as she found out that she was miscarrying and that the baby wouldn't survive um, but because there was still a heartbeat at that stage she was told she couldn't and that it was impossible because quote Ireland is a Catholic country and basically she got sepsis and she died of that and her family believed that if she had been allowed a termination when she asked for one she would still be alive Right and of course that made headlines around the world and made a huge impact in Ireland Uh, and there are no end of these horrifying cases so for example like we mentioned in a previous episode uh, there was a woman who had been declared clinically dead who was 18 weeks pregnant whose family had to go through the courts to be allowed to take her off life support 
like some of these situations would actually make you feel sick like there's another one where a woman who was who was raped she arrived in Ireland from elsewhere and she she didn't know she was pregnant at the time and when she found out she tried to access an abortion and she found out the uh, the barriers that there were and then she tried to kill herself and finally working within a system which was foreign to her she she got up to the panel of experts level who assessed that she could get an abortion because she was suicidal but by that stage, it was actually too late. The fetus was too developed. So the baby had to be taken out of her by cesarean so that she didn't harm herself. Oh my God. I mean, this is this is draconian stuff. It's just it's just really disgusting. Like it's, it's as though as soon as you're pregnant, like your body becomes an incubator and your, your rights as a person are, are, are sort of downgraded somehow. And the state has this unusual power over you to force you into mm. things so the, the UN has um, repeatedly condemned Ireland for these laws and for its treatment of women essentially the combination of things that leads to these cases is that the law creates simultaneously this lack of clarity for doctors and at the same time extremely high stakes for getting it wrong right so as it stands then the law says that if you intentionally destroy unborn human life then you can get up to 14 years in prison right yes that's right so doctors don't want to break the law and the layers of bureaucracy you have to go through um for example if you are suicidal means that pregnancies go on for longer it drags out and you get these horrible crisis situations and of course the reality is that people just end up dodging the irish jurisdiction exactly yeah they use a workaround so the trip to england is deeply culturally ingrained like it's something i would have been very aware of as a teenager you know that it would be a backup plan in case of emergency um, but it was always shrouded in, you know, shame and secrecy. Yeah, right. And of course, this this also brings in a financial issue straight away as well, because to make that trip, you have to be able to afford to travel and, of course, to afford the procedure. Um, uh, women in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, of course, are not covered by the NHS. And we're talking um, sometimes here about teenagers, you know, like practically children who literally don't have any money of their own, you know, like no money in their pocket. Yeah, some um, of them are children. Yeah, oh, right. And there's also the practical side, you know, like there was a story on the radio the other week about a girl who had flown to Manchester with her mother to get an abortion. And um, then post-operation, you know, they had nowhere to go. They had to wait for their flight home. So she had to sit in a cafe or somewhere. Um, uh, she didn't actually specify. Quite heavily bleeding out still after the operation and not able to go home to her bed. It's horrible. So, Naomi, how many people actually do this? Well, the UK Department of Health actually keeps statistics on this. Well, they keep statistics on how many women and girls give Irish addresses at abortion clinics each year. This is actually underestimate because they might not all provide their Irish addresses but last year they were registered 64 a week so that's that's like nine a day yeah more or less and you know some people go to other countries of course some people go to the Netherlands and other people take abortion pills at home which can sometimes be arranged over the internet um, although this route got disrupted in recent years Oh, right. What was that? Well, essentially, Irish customs knew about the abortion pill packets that you could get, and they were stopping them. But interestingly, abortion rights activism is one of the areas which is fully all-Ireland integrated. Oh, God, right. So there was a workaround through the north, essentially. So customs in Northern Ireland were letting them through, and they were getting sent there, and then they were being repackaged and sent around to addresses in the south. Um, But this changed. So suddenly in 2015, 2016, police started to investigate. So Northern Irish police 
um, started to act on the laws that existed and the supply train got broken. Uh, the packages stopped coming and they weren't arriving then in the south anymore uh, because there was this crackdown. Right, okay, so like what happened then? So essentially the, the packets stopped being getting through and at the same time uh, prosecutions began for the first time in decades. So a, a 21-year-old woman was reported by her flatmates and she was prosecuted for taking abortion pills under that 1861 law. Uh, that oh, Victorian God. law. So this was the first prosecution of its kind in 40 years and she got a suspended sentence. Oh God, this is insane. Yeah, so there were raids on houses and abortion pills were being seized and so on. And the activists I spoke to believe that this was because there was a change at the top. So they think there was, you know, there was a bit of a blind eye policy mm. before, but they believed a senior figure came in and had a particular axe to grind on this um, oh. and started to enact the laws that, that were there. So, but uh, quite an interesting hap- thing happened, Tim. Right, what's, what's that? Well, essentially... I mean, you could have seen this coming, but whoever decided to enact the laws didn't see it this way. The crackdown put this issue on the agenda in a way that it hadn't been before. Right, of course. So essentially, the, the legal situation is behind public opinion on this. And that was fine as long as the laws weren't actually put into practice. Um, some activists responded to the crackdown by taking abortion pills en masse even when they weren't pregnant and reporting themselves to the police. And all of this, the crackdown and the subsequent protests, this put the laws on the agenda in a way they hadn't been for years. So last week, I went out onto the streets of Dublin to ask how people are feeling ahead of the expected referendum campaign. They're now talking about a referendum potentially next year about the uh, Eighth Amendment. How, how do you feel about that right now? What do you think the atmosphere is about that? I think it's something that's very controversial. Like people have their beliefs, whether they're because of like religion or anything else, um, and that's something that's always, I think, going to divide people. I think both sides have logical foundations and I think it is something that is going to divide the country either way no matter what way you think yeah I would agree I'd say it's definitely a very kind of hostile environment regarding it people are much more almost afraid to voice their opinions on this issue in comparison um, to the, the gay marriage referendum and it's going to take a long time I think for people to feel comfortable talking openly about the issue There's a lot more variables to compare in this issue. Every person's case, every single story is different. And I think it's not really a simple yes or no for a lot of people. It's somewhere in the middle. So it's kind of harder to find the words to accurately describe what people's opinions are. And I think it's just going to be a lot tougher to kind of come up with the actual wording for the legislation in the first place. In fairness, I don't really have much of an opinion. I I think women themselves should have a choice of what they'd like to do it's women's bodies it's women's lives at stake I have no I have no right to say what women cannot do but I do feel like there are both sides of the story and I can get that but then I think women's bodies are women's bodies and they should be able to decide uh, if it's your body it's your choice yeah. I think it is anyway yeah so yeah. that'd be my opinion on it I am um, I'm pro-choice so I would definitely be for repeal the 8th uh, my body my choice I think um, if we have a chance to vote on it I would definitely vote on yes I support it 100%. Yeah. And do you have any sense about how people feel generally? Is there a sense like it, it'll pass comfortably or how are you feeling now? Um, everyone I talk to is probably against it. I don't know if it will pass. I don't know. Everyone I talk to, a few of my friends support it. The majority of them actually don't, which just surprises me because we're a young generation. Um, I don't know if it will pass. I don't know. It's not. It doesn't sound good to me. No. Years ago, you got married, you had kids, and that was the way it was. 
and I think it's changed in here but a lot of people's attitudes are still set on that idea of family comes first my family like my dad would be very much like you know close your legs if you don't want to have you don't want to get pregnant it's like well what happens if I was raped what happens if you know I didn't have the money we didn't have the money to afford it you know and I think it's all about like talking to people and not like attacking them because people just completely turn their back to you if you shout statistics or these opinions at them and I think it's really important to listen to other people's side and say well what about if this was your sister or your daughter and you know put it in that way instead of being like you know because at the end of the day people always have that argument that it's like a life that's going to be lost and that is true like even if it is a fetus it's still like a baby you know and I think that sometimes the pro-choice can kind of almost disregard that and it can sound very like clinical or scientific and then people are like nah like that's not my view on family and stuff so I think it's all about just having conversations and listening to both sides. We all have our opinions on pro-choice we all like are affected by it because we're women but like 50% of the population are men and they can't relate like there's been times where I've thought like what if I have to get an abortion and for 50% of the men, the people who live in this country, like it might secondarily affect them, like if their girlfriend gets pregnant or if their friend gets pregnant, but they're voting on something that really they can't properly relate to because they can, they're just never going to get pregnant. So as you might have heard there, Tim, people are feeling kind of trepidatious about the coming uh, campaign as it gets underway. Right. It's interesting to hear how it's already causing divisions, isn't it? And uh, also how people are automatically comparing it to the very successful referendum for same-sex marriage back in 2015. Mm. Uh, So what is the public opinion on this right now? Okay, so I'll do Northern Ireland first because we were just talking about it. So in Northern Ireland, there is overwhelming support for abortion access in the case of rape, incest or fatal fetal abnormality so that means when the fetus has a condition like anencephaly for example which means it won't survive once it's born and i think that's similar in the republic right yeah it's really similar in the rest of ireland so there's overwhelming support for abortion availability in in those extreme cases um but support for uh, abortion in any circumstances so like without having to give a reason that's only at about a quarter right so that's super low and like can we pinpoint why that is Well, essentially, people aren't used to the idea of ending a pregnancy merely because the person carrying doesn't want to have a baby. Like, they're they're not comfortable with that. And Mm. a lot of people just don't think that should be legal. Right. And uh, like, so this is, I suppose, a socially ingrained attitude. And what does that mean for the referendum? So here's the thing. So the the question hasn't been designed yet. Um, Now, if you ask abortion rights campaigners, they believe the public simply needs to hear their case and the numbers will change. So they'd argue that people simply don't realise the reality of what restrictions in the law mean. So, for example, if we did actually have uh, the law that abortion is only available for cases of, say, rape and incest, how do you actually prove rape within a short deadline? Like, rape prosecutions are notoriously difficult to achieve anyway and, like, they take years. So Mm. how would you actually... What would that actually mean? And how do you prove incest? You know, and and would you actually, you're talking about like victims of horrible crimes here. Like, would you actually want to put them through all of that in the first place? Right. And of course, with any case of abortion, then the clock is ticking the whole time. Mm. So there's immense pressure. Uh, And what if somebody's just in a really vulnerable situation, like they're an immigrant or they don't speak the language or they find out they're pregnant really late or what have you? I mean, you, you get the same complicated, horrible situations that you do now then. Yeah, exactly. So all these legal barriers, they act in a very imperfect, unfair way way and they they penalize the most vulnerable people 
Um, but, you know, on the other side, the people who want abortion to, to remain illegal, um, they want that often because they believe the fetus has a right to life just like a person. And they believe they're fighting for the lives of the most innocent in society. And, you know, in their view, that outweighs the unpleasantness of forcing people to give birth against their will. Right. So um, what's the situation now then? Well, it's really politically tricky. So you have these very divided views. Um, and as you saw in the campaign that brought in the amendment in the first place, you have a very, very determined and well-funded lobby, international lobby, which is in favor of keeping maximum restrictions in place. So the reform movement needs brave politicians, first of all. Um, and then the other thing is it's really hard to wage like a positive campaign about this like I mean, what's your best material like it's like a woman kind of living her best life we all know how how much people hate that <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure god um okay uh so that is a big barrier i suppose yeah how to wage this campaign uh but but now the government has convened a citizens assembly right so that's a group of like a hundred representative citizens who they kind of hash out the arguments on both sides and they come up with recommendations yeah exactly and they actually the citizens assembly actually surprised the government because they came up with very progressive recommendations. So they recommend that, that abortion be available if a woman wants it um, without conditions like she needs to have been raped or whatever up until 12 weeks. And then for socioeconomic reasons, up to 22 weeks and at any time for a fetus that won't survive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so what happens now? So next, the next step is they need to design the, the referendum question and the potential legislation that would replace it. So right now an Oireachtas committee, so a parliament committee, which is made up of people from different parties, is listening to experts and they're going to come up with a recommendation on the question of the referendum. Right, okay, so the big question here then in the campaign is where do we go now? Like, what do they replace the Eighth Amendment with? Do, do they replace it with nothing? Or are they going to put in some other wording? Um, is it just going to be amended? Or what legislation should come in after the referendum? Exactly. And then you have the question of actually implementing any possible change. Like, so actually getting hospitals to provide the service when there is a strong Catholic influence in healthcare in Ireland and actually getting doctors that are willing to do it. So those are barriers already in countries where abortion is legal. Um, and they're, they're battles for the future. But I took the most immediate questions right to the source. So I spoke to our health minister, Simon Harris, to ask him. By the way, Tim, do you know how old Simon Harris is? <laughs> how old is he? He was born on October 17th, 1986. So he is <gasps> 31. All oh, right, he's only a baba. Yeah, he's he's a bit like a political prodigy. You know, he was even discussed as a possible leader of Fine Gael before Leo Radker kind of steamrolled everybody. Oh, yeah, hell. although he politely, okay. politely demurred. Anyway, Simon Harris is the minister in charge of taking on the Eighth Amendment. So let's hear what he has to say. If I were to need an abortion ur- urgently in Ireland in 2019, do you think I'll be able to get one? Uh, it's not down to, to me, but I certainly would hope so. Um, I believe we need to change. Um, I don't believe the Constitution is the place to deal with these issues. I believe we need to empower doctors and uh, doctors to make decisions that help uh, meet women's health needs. We all know of the appallingly difficult situation in relation to rape and incest. We know the fact that many women in Ireland every year go abroad um, to have abortion. So abortion is a reality for many people and many families in this country. It just often doesn't take place in this country. It takes place abroad. So I favour constitutional change in relation to this. Um, I think it's going to be a complex issue um, in terms of the fact that there's lots of different views in this country. And we can only bring about change by a majority vote of the people. 
um, because that's the only way we can change the Irish constitution. But I certainly um, intend to campaign and advocate for a change in this area. The cases that you've mentioned, like rape and fatal fetal abnormality, suggest that you might we might be looking at legislation that would have restrictions in terms of the cases in which abortion might be available. Is is that the case? Is that the kind of legislation you'll pursue? Uh, to, be, to be quite honest, um, my own view on this is continuing to evolve and develop. Um, we have an Oireachtas committee looking at the issue. If there was to be a referendum, how would what would that referendum consider if there was to be change? What would that change look like? And I think a lot of people in this country, including myself, are trying to crystallize our own thinking in relation to um, the circumstances whereby abortion should be made available. And you obviously have a wide range of different different circumstances in the European Union. And I think there's there's a there's a debate that needs to be had in this country. And also we need to obviously make sure that in putting forward a referendum in this country, we put forward a referendum that um, could hopefully command the support of 50% plus one, at least the people who are best able to make decisions about their own health and well-being are women, and the people who are best able to make um, medical decisions are obviously clinicians. And I think we need to listen to both very carefully in the debate. What do you think is the biggest challenge that you're going to face in getting that amendment repealed? I think it's the fact that you will have some people in Ireland who won't wish to see any change. You'll have some people in Ireland who will wish to see very significant change. And to pass a referendum, you have to make sure that even a majority of people in the country are willing to back a proposition. Uh, I think finding a wording and a legislative way forward that can command a majority of people in the country uh, to vote for it and back it uh, will be a challenge. And I mean, I want to make sure that every citizen in this country, regardless of their views, and I respect the fact that people have lots of different views and, and hold them sincerely, I want to see an opportunity for people to make their decision based on factual information placed in front of them and not based on any kind of um, misinformation. I also worry that in the past, in this country, we've had very divisive campaigns. I think it can't be beyond us as a mature country to have a civilized debate where we can People can argue their points of view vociferously, uh, but respect the fact that people are entitled to their view and actually cast their ballot in the privacy of the ballot box. I know it wouldn't in any way compare these two issues, but you know we we, we had a very successful referendum on marriage equality, um, which I think showed that Ireland is a, is a, is changing and modernising. And um, this referendum will be very different, um, but it's a really important question. People of my generation have never had an opportunity to have their say on this issue. Do you think it'll be about finding the middle ground? I do. This is because this is not about my view per se, or or the view of any individual minister, or TD, or commentator. This is about uh, the majority of people in the country deciding that they wish to back a proposition, or indeed deciding that they don't wish to back a proposition. And what's your sense of what would have majority support at this stage? I think there's a few um, moving parts in relation to this. I think I do believe there's a majority of people in this country um, who believe the Eighth Amendment um, is not working. And I do believe there's a majority of people in this country that are, you know, find it extraordinarily difficult to comprehend uh, how women in difficult circumstances um, are treated. Um, but exactly where where the legislation will go and um, does remain to be seen. And remember, this is a minority government. To even have a referendum, your parliament has to vote in favour of a referendum bill. And somehow I want to keep my own views to, to the back of this debate because I need to come up with a with colleagues, a, a proposition that would command 50% support in the Oireachtas at least. Um, 
so that you can have a referendum bill. I can have all the views I want, but if, if the Parliament doesn't vote for a bill, for a referendum bill, the referendum can't be held. But, but I remain hopeful that it will. Do you think the Citizens' Assembly recommendations are too radical to be passed? I think there's a number of elements in the Citizens' Assembly that would need to be further considered in detail in terms of in terms of what it means. And I, I do believe that I don't believe all of the Citizens' Assembly recommendations um, would pass in a referendum. But I'm conscious that we're involved in a process here. That we've got an Oireachtas committee, and I want to let that committee do its job, which is to respond to the Citizens' Assembly report. I'm conscious of my role as Health Minister not saying much to preempt that. So you could probably hear there, Tim, that the government is not expecting to bring in an English-style abortion law because it just doesn't think that it will pass as things stand. They don't think that there's majority support for it in the Oireachtas in Parliament and they don't think that there's majority support for it among the public. So it really sounds like they're looking to bring in something less progressive than that. So that'll be up to the campaigners to challenge. Exactly. And the next few months are going to be about fighting out that question. It's going to be an interesting ride this year, I think, in the lead up to that. And it's one that we'll keep following. Absolutely. We could do about four, four more episodes on this, Naomi, yeah. easy enough. Um, but uh, that's definitely all we have time for this time. Uh, we'll be checking back in in 2018. Yeah, for sure. And for now, don't forget, log on to www.theirishpassport.com and buy a bag if you like this podcast. They are great for carrying along to get your shopping or whatever you want. Yes, buy, buy two. Buy some for your friends. Buy three. I've been using them for my shopping for weeks now, honestly. Yeah absolutely and thanks so much for listening do like share and subscribe yeah as always you can follow us on at passport irish on twitter or like us on our facebook page and thank you so much for being with us hi it's naomi here did you see the photos we've been sharing online of a woman with red hair who's modeling our new tote bag that's Aoife mullen she's an artist and a graphic designer from dublin she agreed to give us her time to do that photo shoot on Hoth Hill, and I am so grateful she did. If you haven't seen the photos yet, I put a selection of them on our website, theirishpassport.com, and I'm sure you'll agree that Aoife did an incredible job as a model. You can check out Aoife's work at www.aoifemullen.com. That's Aoife Mullen, A-O-I-F-E-M-U-L-L-A-N. Thank you so much, Aoife.